Bye 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 bye. Hello, hello. This is Bad Boy Running with Jody Rainsford and David Hellard. Officially, Bad Boy Running. Oh, you you about to say it? I was going to do it. You do. We're both we're both so excited. We're so excited. Go on, you do it. You you you'll do it with much more enthusiasm. I was going to steal your thunder. You this is yours. Okay, so officially the number four top podcast according to Runners World. Yeah, not even number four running podcast. That we're number one running. We're number podcast. one running podcast, uh, but number four behind. <laughs> to be fair, some some pretty big competition. Yeah, I mean we we can, we're also the number one comedy podcast, That's the number right. one Netflix recommendation podcast, and the number one nineties um, reggae tribute co- podcast. We're, we're absolutely cleaning up in all of those categories. So if you wondered what, what you're listening for, that essentially we've just, we've already summarized. You've probably, you've probably seen this. You've probably seen the, um, you've probably come to us actually from Runner's World. Uh, you know, th- th- this is what, this is what is even more impressive because in that same list, we're above the Runner's World podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love that. I mean, I've got a lot of respect for Runner's World for doing that. They almost snuck it in at the end. As well, a, it's that cheeky oh, thing where we, we do a clever little t- out of, t- you know, top 10. Oh, and here's 11th, which is ours. Yeah. Nice. I'd, I'd love it if they, instead of the do better way would be to ask people what they like and then go, here's the article about it. And all it says is number one Runner's World podcast. <laughs> Nothing else. <laughs> That would be the do bad away. In fact, we should do that. Our own page of the top 50 podcasts for, for listening, for running, and number one through to number 49, bad boy running. Number 50, probably Adam Buxton, Dr. Buckle. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's the great thing is that you get to control it. So yeah, that's for the sure. important thing. But you know, that's, it's important. It's important that finally we've been acknowledged as a, um, a better and more popular um recommendation than marathon talk yeah and uh, interestingly enough real buzz or the edinburgh marathon podcast didn't even make the list didn't even make well they wouldn't it was down to it was it it was down to voting it was down it was both down to voting to quality it probably went to their awards committee um Stephen Fry's involved it does steve i i bet you Stephen fry is involved he's always involved And, and catelyn jenner Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I imagine that, um, most of the elders, um, uh, are the involved as well. The village, no, the, you know, the one that Richard Branson's put together, like Kofi Annan, um, they probably voted on it as well. Well, I've not heard of this. I mean, do you not know about it? All right. So Richard Branson. Because... I've not been checking my mail. I mean. Well, no, no, this is a, this is a thing that he, he set up ages and ages ago, like when Nelson Mandela was still alive. And he created this thing called the Elders, which is supposed to like a group of like seven or eight, um, like global statespeople who, yeah. um, sort of come together and they help try and sort out world issues. It's like, who it's else like, was on the list? It's like a geriatric Avengers with no power. Was he basically trying to be Jesus and getting 12 disciples? Is, oh, is that what? It's a bit like that. I don't know. I don't see how that. I'm not sure. It's a very noble thing. I'm not sure how how effective they are, but maybe they are. Maybe they. they well, I mean, they have... I mean, the world's perfect now. So... <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's not gone downhill at all in the last few years. Well, but you never know. All of a sudden, Kim, Kim Jong Un decides to 
you know, all of a sudden... Was he on the list? No, no, he wasn't on the list. No, no, but all of a sudden <laughs> he goes, yeah, I'll meet Trump. You never know. They might have flown Kofi Annan in there, Iron Man style, to threaten him. So who who else was on the... I'm intrigued. So Kofi Annan. Kofi Annan. Let me have a look, actually. Boutros Boutros, was he on it? Well, I think Boutros Boutros is dead. Oh... Oh, okay. I'm not entirely sure about that. Actually, I might have just I might have just killed someone. You know, like that time that Chris Morris killed Michael Heseltine by mistake by announcing his death. Um, right? Did he? <laughs> yeah, yeah, he got sacked from it as well, didn't he? Chris Morris got sacked. Chris Morris got sacked for um, comedically um, uh, announcing the death of Michael Heseltine. Yes, I quite like that. Um, but I, I think the elders need... have even got their own website. Okay, so here we've got. All right, we've got. Well, Nelson Mandela was the uh, was the founder. Kofi Annan yep. is the chair. Ban Ki Moon. Okay, Ella... so that's the new, that's the new Kofi, Kofi isn't it? Uh, well, well, no, Kofi's still chair, but he was but the, yeah, in, yeah he it, was. Isn't Ban Ki Moon the new? Is he secretary general? Or is Kofi? Well, he secretary was secretary general. general. I think I think if you're a secretary general of the UN, you get you get in here automatically. Okay, okay. Um, Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter always gets in, doesn't he? But he's got to be. When was this made? He's got to be 90 now. He's like, he's, he's like the longest living person, isn't he? Yeah, I, I think he is. It's, it's unbelievable. Um, uh, Mary Robinson, you know, the, um, former Irish. Yeah, Irish. Uh, yeah, was he a tea shock, was she? Um, uh, Desmond Tutu. We heard of oh, him. He gets in everywhere, doesn't he? He does. He's a cheeky chappy, isn't he, Desmond Tutu? I think he's Tutu. just nice to have in the room. I know. That's it. He's the one. <laughs> It's nice. They're, they're probably thinking this is a god. This is a bit serious. Who's gonna uh, who's gonna bring out the biscuits? Who's gonna spice it up a little bit? Um, and then there's, I think there's there's a lot of um, uh, uh, South American ones. Like Ernesto Zedillo. Um, I'm, I'm going to pretend I know who that Ricardo is. Ricardo you know. I don't know who Hina Gilani is. We need a do-badder equivalent. We need the, the do-badder elders. Yeah. The badders. <laughs> the badders. <laughs> what would the badders try? What would our mission be? The mission would be to slowly go. Oh no! You know we've talked about this before. Um, in Quantum Leap, you know there was a good Quantum Leap, like yeah. Sam was the good one, and then there was a bad Quantum Leaper. The badders. But she, undo. she was. She ended up being good. Did she? I can't yeah, remember that. Because after we talked about it, I was I was annoyed, upset, and disappointed with myself that I didn't know that. So I then went and downloaded them all, watched them all, and yeah, he saves her. But then the the, the evil owl, she's the one that's really bad, and they're trying to save the 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 evil Sam, and the and the evil Sam kind of jumps, and then they're trying to protect her because she's in the waiting room while. Oh, something like that. Yeah, I think I think she ends up going to heaven. Oh, this is a spoiler alert. No, I pr- That's true. Uh, you've That's ruined true. It. You've ruined it. Oh, oh does she? Oh, does she? Or so now, you no, think? Or so they lead you to believe? <laughs> so this is it. The badders are gonna uh, just go to undo the work of the elders. I mean, I. <sighs> I think that would be. Um, I don't think I'd be that happy as that was our mission. All right, okay, let's do that. They will go in. They will make changes that no one cares about. Pursue causes of little concern, which are slightly amusing. How about because they're they're probably trying to um, 
bring you know, like bring an end to conflict yeah. and you know bring peace to um bring happiness to areas of poverty yeah we should bring humor to areas of poverty maybe it's gonna be tricky <laughs> it's really tricky isn't it that's a that's a hard one yeah you've got to fly into this favela <laughs> and you've got to you've got to spice it up a bit like <laughs> i'm i'm imagining a lot of uh a lot of balloon animals. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the the path to world peace is balloon animals. Yeah, I you know, think my so. sister, my sister is a, a professional balloon animalist. When you say professional, isn't that is how she makes her money? She makes money. That is one of the ways she makes money. That's incredible. How much uh, is a balloonist? You can earn a lot of money really? because yeah. She went to um, Dubai. Was it Dubai? Dubai or the United Arab Emirates or something like that. Yeah. Um, to do a party for a prince there who was, who was putting on a frozen theme for his daughter. And so yeah. the whole garden was done up with, like, they built castles and they put snow in and there was, like, ice skating. And one of the things was they had a giant tent and they had to go there and do frozen balloons that just flew them, flew them all the way out, put put them in the, up it for like a, a week, just so they could come and do balloon um, characters from Frozen. Wow! And so she then had to learn how to make a frozen yeah, balloon. so like Snow- snowman and yeah, you know, and an Elsa and other things like that. Wow! I mean, I I feel like that is quite an achievable job. It, there are, do you know what? There's like a few people who are like real, real, real experts in it, and they keep it like really closely guarded because you can earn really good money from it. So have they almost got their own balloon elders? There is like a balloon. It's like the balloon um, magic circle, but not magic, more inflated. Rubbish they have circle. an inflated sense of ego. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. I should have. I should have that in much fun. We should re-record that, and I should slip that <laughs> in as a better joke. Yeah, edit it, edit Nick, edit it. That Jody sounds really clever and funny with that. Like normal, like normal, like normal, like yeah. Normal. But do badders. What should the the do badder elders, the badders? What should we try and achieve? Who should be in there? Who should be in there? I mean, we've obviously got Pato. Yes, Pato. Do we put Eddie Izzard in there? Mm, yeah, no, no. I think, um, I think because he's going to obviously undo all the good that we do. Greg James. Uh, Greg James. Oh, what? Mike Bushel. He has to go in. Mike Bushel. <laughs> Mike Bushel yeah. has to be in the elders. The bad, Bushel's bad best bits is definitely in the badders. It's already looking good. It's looking a pretty strong lineup so far. And what I like about this is, this is achievable. <laughs> it's like, have you got anything else to? Well, how do we pitch it to them? Right. Listen <laughs> uh, <laughs> to two hundred hours of our podcast, and if you're still interested, then we're going to meet in. And in fact, where where would we even meet? We'd probably meet somewhere we'll like Chesington. Ne- Chesington. <laughs> We'd meet on a waltzer in Chesington, but we'd all be we'd all be carrying beers on the. Whoa! 
But anyway, anyway, do, uh, welcome to the Bad Boy Running Podcast, a podcast solely about running. So just about running, best running podcast in the world ever. Indeed, indeed. Well, actually, to be fair, with this episode, this is probably the most runningy running episode we've ever done. Yeah, and we've what we've done is we've just tried to throw you off the scent because this what what's coming up? How long is how long is the the interview? It's I mean, this is an intense interview. So just to ex- explain what happened, I think it's about an hour and 50. But yeah. typically in the podcast, um, myself and Jody, sometimes Ali Bailey, um, will interview someone and part interview, part conversation, just let the conversation really flow around a topic and just see what happens. This one, I mean, Jody, you, you, you needed to mow the lawn or something? <laughs> <laughs> it was the tonsillitis thing you're joking about, aren't you? Yeah, I mean, explain. I mean, apologise first to the do-badders for not being able to make... Oh, sorry. Yeah. I'm sorry. I've, I, I've had tonsillitis, so I couldn't do the interview. Uh, did we talk about this? Did we talk about the time that Libby made me mow the lawn when I had tonsillitis? You just mentioned it in a, in a text, but not actually on the podcast. <laughs> did I not? Yeah, so, like, first time, this is the total lack of sympathy that we have for me. First time I had tonsillitis, she thought I was just whining like a baby. And I'm like, honestly, I feel terrible. And she has such a massive lack of sympathy for me. <laughs> uh, and I wouldn't go to the doctor, and that's what really annoyed her. Cause I'm Were you the boy they called Wolf? Had you I had... think I, I have, yeah, I think that, that is partly to do with it. And so she basically made me mow the lawn when I was feeling this awful. Uh, and... And to be fair, she hasn't like lived it down since because everyone's been told this and, and, and everything. But when I eventually recovered from uh, tonsillitis that first time, she caught tonsillitis. And then like the week after, she had it really badly. And she was kept apologizing to me going, I'm so sorry. I didn't realize that this was. <laughs> what did you make her do? Anything. I didn't make her do anything. I didn't make her do anything because I'm not evil like that. Uh, although that nine mile runner made her do. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, but coincidentally, you did mention that the you know the grass in the lawn was is quite long at the moment. You're making you're you're making some like filthy joke here. No, you I'm, are. Honestly, you not, are. I'm, you keep saying it. I was implying that maybe she'd cause you to get tonsillitis to force you to mow the lawn. Uh, I, I don't. She's not Russian. I don't know if she could cause like cause. <laughs> right, I, cause I wouldn't be like faster. I wouldn't. Yeah, I mean, yes, her Kolovnovsky, um maiden name might point to uh, <laughs> her actually being a little bit more adept at, uh, at, at you know, uh, toxic gases and everything than I thought. How have we got anyway, on to, we got anyways, on to mowing the fucking lawn? I don't... Say again? How have we got on to mowing the lawn and tonsillitis? So basically, well, the whole point was, I wasn't, I wasn't well enough to do this interview. Yeah. Um, yep. So so David did it on his own, but actually, which actually yeah. turned out to be a, a really good way of doing it yeah i mean there's some topics which i think are discussion topics there's some topics where someone knows a lot i know nothing and and this is one of those cases and it was perfect because as you'll soon discover uh we spoke to a guy called will ryle who works for run fast and it's an area of running that i don't think anyone really knows about you know i've been running for 11 years or so and i've heard of run fast but it's it's almost a it seems like a secretive side of the business. Essentially, they manage 
the the best runners in the world. Not quite Kipchoge, uh, Bekele, but you know they've had people that last two weeks ago won the Seville Marathon, uh, came third in the Lisbon Mar- Half Marathon, which is crazy good standard. You know they've got several of the, the top Kenyans. And so, as you'll find out, this interview is essentially me asking questions about like, how do, how does this happen? How do you find them? And uh, and and every single answer just more and more questions came. So um, yeah, I think should we just crack on yeah, straight, straight in? into it? Because I'm I'm fascinated by this. Um, so yeah, uh, yeah, let's do it. And and just so you know, it's um, we're going to split the interview because because it is so long essentially. So we'll. Um, We'll be catching up more um, later in part two, um, but we want to get this out straight away. So we're not going to do a long um, chat afterwards because it's halfway through the episode. So, um, yeah, enjoy. At the end of it, we'll do a quick thank you. If you've got any questions, we're going to be posting a lot of information about Run Fast in the group. They run a um, they've got their own running club. They've got their own shop that you can actually go in cafe um uh, but i met will on a plane i think i talk a little about this on the intro um he's recently joined them to be part of their management program so yeah into the intro welcome will ryle well uh listen we've we've got a guest on that jody sadly can't make he's he said he's sick with tonsillitis um i think we believe him but i first met will ryle about a year ago at the beer mile but we don't really remember it because we met in the pub <laughs> at about midnight and we were both so drunk that we don't know uh, what we okay. said to each other but we know that we did say stuff to each other but that's as far as we got <laughs> but then by coincidence we um i when i was heading to somaliland will was heading out to kenya kenya was it kenya yeah to do some scouting for run fast and I wanted to get Will on. In fact, I wanted to talk about Run Fast. Um, I've, it's been on my radar for a while because it's just an area of running that I don't think anyone is aware of, um, even even the top end runners. It's really interesting. So I wanted to get Will on to talk about it, explain how it works, and uh, just to find out more. So welcome to the podcast, Will. Whee! How you doing? Thanks, David. I'm I'm doing really well. Uh, this is my podcast debut as a uh, as a guest. Um, We've well, got I, a beer in front of you, so this is a good sign. Yes, I'm in my new flat. I just moved in in March, um, so the walls are a bit bare, but I do have my college singlet on the wall here behind. Oh, me. is that your running top? Yeah, it says JCU. What's it's where I went for undergrad? Where's JCU? It's in Cleveland, back in the States. It's, and is it a uh, renowned running college? Is it the Duke of running? Not quite. Uh, not yet, anyways. Um, so it's John Carroll University, their Division Three. Um, when I got there, uh, they were kind of just wallowing in mediocrity. Um, and is and that now Division Three is in running division? Yeah, so the NCAA yeah. is the basically governing body or what have you of the college athletics yeah. um, world in the States. So all the sports, American football, basketball, baseball, soccer, everything else uh, are almost all through NCAA. Okay. So it's like our bucks. Yeah. 
Um, but divisions, divisions one and two of NCAA offer scholarships to some of their athletes. Yeah. Um, whereas division three is all non-scholarship. Oh. Um, well, I mean, if you, for the listener, I did one track session with Will. I, he, I don't think he was aware of that because he, he never saw me. Whereas <laughs> I saw his heels for about three seconds. He's incredibly quick. So, um, and does, is the, does the level get set across the board for a university in all sports or is each sport different? Uh, typically, um, a school is the same division for all their sports. Okay. But it can really vary, um, because some sports only have one division or only have one and three, like ice hockey, for example. Mm. There'd be like schools that have, that are division three for track, but division one for ice hockey. Um, so potentially could be a really good running team, but because your American football team sucks balls, you are in the third division or, you know, you're, you're just not with people in the same level. Actually, no, it's not uh, promotion and relegation um, in any way. Uh, they they really base it mostly off of enrollment numbers. Um, okay. And I'm not an NCAA compliance whiz by any means, but uh, it's it's also down to budget and how much a school wants to spend on sports and scholarships and everything else. Um, so the so NCAA actually know the budgets that universities will spend on sports. Yeah, and they have certain rules and restrictions on how many scholarships you can give out per sport and per gender, and they keep it equal across the genders, so you have to give equal funding to men's and women's sports at your school, oh, uh, wow. equal, equal amounts of scholarships. Is that in all um, sports? Y- well, so... So say, say there's a netball. So, so over here, I don't think men's netball exists, but does that mean that they'd have to give equal amounting to a men's netball netball teams they would to a women's netball team so the way it works and this is all because of something called title nine which came into play in the 60s sort of in the civil rights era yeah um but basically there have to be equal amounts of scholarships and funding across the genders for the entire athletic department okay so american football is the biggest by far college sport. It's a huge revenue and earning sport. Yeah. Um, but only men play it. So, um, the, the top end fully funded biggest programs for, excuse me, American football would have like 70 scholarships. Yeah. Wait, for one college? Yeah. Whoa. Is that it per year? 75. That's wow. per year, like, so 75 full scholarships. Yeah. Um, so they have, so they don't have a women's American football team. Yeah. So they have to make it up among those other sports. And, um, what's actually too bad about that is you have these, these schools that want to spend all this money on, on American football and, and basketball and have these big time programs. And then sort of the, the Olympic type sports or then the non-revenue earning sports on the men's side yeah. can end up getting cut. So there's a lot of schools with a uh, women's track team, but not men's. Uh, oh, interesting. Same with cross country. So, okay. so for example, with, with cross country and track, they lump those together for each gender. So women um, for NCAA divisions one and two, I think you can get 
you can give out 18 scholarships. Yeah. Uh, and men can only get 12 and a half for the men's team. So I don't know if you're watching, uh, any, or you saw any of NCAA Division One indoor champs over the weekend. Um, I saw the world champs, but I didn't know. I didn't yeah. see the, yeah. So at the world champs, the meet ended on this thrilling finish in the men's four by four, right? Poland totally upset, uh, Team oh, USA. I missed it. Okay. No, I haven't seen that. Okay. Amazing. Yeah, so Poland came pretty much out of nowhere yeah. and uh, beat Team USA in the 4x4, which USA was pretty heavily favored, Yeah, and broke the indoor world record for the 4x4. Whoa! I mean, I wouldn't even put Poland as a medal contender in any 4x4 in history, let alone... Right. Probably wouldn't have thought they'd get to a final. Right, right. But then the very next week, at the NCAA Division One uh, Indoor Championships, mm. I think there were three teams under that time, and there was a team from USC, which is uh, Southern California, that beat it by like a second or something. Yeah, but it doesn't count as a world record because it had three Americans and one guy who runs for Antigua. <laughs> um, but the second place team. Uh, all had Americans, so that'll be the world record. But what I was getting to That's is so that weird. first, so that first place team is Southern California. They have this, you know, really highly ranked men's track and field team. Is that the Trojans? The Trojans, exactly. Yeah, I'm a Trojan fan. Okay, okay. So, so you should know before you get too much further into your fandom, <laughs> they they don't actually sponsor a varsity men's cross country team. Oh, because the money's Only all women. in the American football. Right, American football, basketball, whatever other mm. sports where they have to cut things like men's cross country. So does this mean potentially you might get a third side, a third, I probably got all the terminology wrong, third level university college, because they're not big on their American football, have the number one cross country team? Yeah, so... um the team that has won, I think, the last two years, the NCAA cross country is Northern Arizona University in Flagstaff. Mm. And they have a football team, American football, but it's at the like lower subdivision mm. of Division One football. They actually split up. So I'm kind of getting into the nitty gritty here. But, <laughs> uh, so NCAA Division One uh, football, American football. I think it's 70 or 75 scholarships for the um, bowl subdivision, which is yeah. the very top end schools like Southern Cal, for example. Yeah. And then Northern Arizona is in the uh, championship subdivision, which only has like 50, I think, scholarships. So because of that, their football team, they don't have to direct as yeah. much into it. So they can afford to have a fully funded athletics program i mean that that's incredible because over here it's, it's quite a different system but i'd be surprised if i went to imperial if they had more than they probably had three or four scholarships total and i imagine they'd just be for rowers and that would be okay. all sports i don't think you'd get a scholarship in, in any other sport you might have done for the medical school for rugby just because the old boys have put money in but um wow anyway anyway interesting interesting <laughs> But, Sorry to get off on that 
tangent there. No, we love tangents, especially. I mean, it's, okay, I, we've never discussed anything like that before, and I don't think we're, in the UK we're definitely aware of how big college football is because of shows like uh, Friday Night Lights. Yep. And you just, you know, you do hear about the UCL, a USC games, and you know when you see any of the footage about. OJ Simpson and his early years, and I mean they they've got bigger stadiums than any football stadium in Europe. Yeah, I mean it's incredible, like one hundred and fifty thousand something, aren't they? Uh, I think it's like a hundred and five hundred and ten thousand. So my mom actually went to University of Michigan. Yeah. Um, and there's there's uh, American football stadium is called the Big House, and I think a few summers ago they had like. Real Madrid and Barcelona or something yeah. in there, and it it filled the whole like hundred and ten thousand people's stadium. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's crazy. So but... it's insane. Yeah. But, um, on to on to run fast. So, I mean, how would you how would you explain what run fast is? So uh, it's a multi faceted company, that's for sure. Mm. Um, my side of it is a. Uh, performance running sports management company yeah so um we manage top international runners uh mainly on the road and marathon a few track um and they're mainly kenyan yeah um we do manage a few brits we manage two americans we manage one irish woman um and hopefully with me coming along, we'll, we'll sign some more Americans pretty soon here. Um, but what we do, uh, for these athletes is we find them races, uh, across the globe, um, with good prize money for them to, you know, really excel in. Um, and we, uh, if they're at a high enough level, uh, secure and negotiate, uh, sponsorship and endorsement contracts for them. Um, so with these races, we negotiate, we can negotiate appearance fees, yeah. um, make sure they can pay for travel, accommodation, things like that. Yeah. So, um, as an example, over this weekend, we, uh, we were busy, the other manager and myself, uh, he was at the Barcelona marathon, uh, where we had two athletes racing. So he was managing them there Yeah. and I was at the Lisbon half marathon. And we had two athletes there. Um, and in terms of the, I mean, when we talk about, I mean, because Kenyan's obviously unbelievably good. Um, mm. What what number marathon runner? What number? You know, in the rankings, would you say? Because it, it's it's not you're not you're not Kipchoge. It's not Bekele. I mean, out of you know, if you were to rank from one to a hundred, the top hundred Kenyans. Is there a, a sweet spot you go for, and, and what what number do your runners tend to be? So the um, when you become a manager, um, you to manage Kenyans professionally mm. uh, and to keep it above board, uh, you have to be an IAAF authorized athlete representative. Yeah. So that's. Uh, my boss, uh, a guy named Peter McHugh, uh, has that authorization. And, so the guy with the um, long white hair. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And isn't he something like the world record holder for over 70s 
some distance running or something crazy? Well, last I, I so he just turned seventy last year. Yeah, and he hasn't done any racing that I know about. So I don't think he has any over seventy uh, <laughs> group world records quite yet. Um, I might be mistaking him for someone else with a similar look potentially. Well, I did hear because um, he's somewhat of an institution uh, in this town. Mm. He, I think, had the over sixty British twenty mile record or something okay. like that. <laughs> um, but he's he's a lifelong runner. Mm. Um, he's, he's really just passionate about running and getting people to, uh, progress in their, in their running development and things like that. So, um, what I was coming to is that mm. the IAAF keeps track of, uh, the top 30 athletes, um, in the world yeah. at the IAAF recognized distances. Okay. So like 10K, 15K, half marathon, marathon. Yeah. And, um, if you're an agent and you have those top 30 athletes, then, um, the IAAF basically sort of recognizes you at a higher level and, and keeps more of a close eye on you as far as I can tell. Yeah. Um, and those athletes can also then get into the registered testing pool for, uh, anti-doping for out of competition tests. So we have, um, in that top 30, I think in 2017, we had one female marathoner or excuse me, half marathoner. And I think one male half marathoner. And I think now for 2018, uh, we have a male half marathoner up in there. And, and so how we many had, of those, how many of those 30 would you estimate a Kenyan? Well, it depends on the event. I would say mm. for half marathon and marathon, it's probably 15 to 20. Oh, wow. Maybe even more. And then the rest are probably oh, almost all Ethiopian. <laughs> yeah. And, and then, then Mo Farah. <laughs> That's about. <laughs> yeah. Or, the, well, you've probably heard the um, Norwegian guy, Sondre Moen. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think he's probably in there. Um, but it's, yeah, I mean, it's pretty deep. It's where the talent is. Um, obviously Japan's really deep too, uh, in the marathon. Uh, so it kind of can depend on the event and the year, but I would say consistently it's, it's Kenya yeah. that where that, where it has the most depth on the road. So are you, would you say it's fair to say that you essentially create careers for runners who possibly aren't good enough to have financial careers without management assistance um i think so i mean it's it's not all down to me obviously yeah i work really closely with my colleague james but i mean i mean um, run fast as an organization for oh, example. Yeah. okay run fast yeah yeah so so we have um two different camps in Kenya. Mm. We have one in Iten and one in Embu. Um, and the Iten one is the the one that's more organized and we put more resources into that one. Yeah. Um, have you, I'm assuming you've been to Iten? 
No, never been to Kenya. Oh, you know about it, Dan? Yeah, no, yeah. I mean, it's basically the home of oh, well, okay. the number, the fastest place on earth, I guess. Yeah, it's home of champions. I mm. mean, you, as my boss would say, you can't, you know, you you throw a stone and you hit a professional runner. So, mm. um, it's where the majority, I would say, of the talent in Kenya probably is. Yeah. So what we're what we do is. Um, have a camp, uh, in a tent that's, you know, a camp that we actually set up and, and put resources to. The, the one in Embu is more unofficial. It's not where, you know, a place athletes live on. Yeah. Um, whereas the, the place in Iten is basically a home. Yeah. Uh, with a few different athlete rooms and then there's a massage room, a kitchen, an outhouse. Um, and so athletes can come onto that camp having, uh, our coach, um, maybe just have seen them in a race somewhere in Kenya. They performed yeah. well and were training on their own in their village back home. Uh, our coach Ken could then, uh, give them a, an opportunity to live on the camp and train with the team there, um, and find them some more races, uh, in Kenya. And if they do really well there, mm. then uh, we can find them races in the UK, in Europe. Uh, they do really well at those races, and it can all just sort of springboard from there. Sponsorship proposals, better races, appearance money. So do most, of your, do most of your athletes then, are they living at this camp year-round other than when they're racing or acclimatizing then in general law? Well, most of the athletes that live on the camp yeah. and that are contracted athletes from Run Fast do live on the camp year round. Okay. So they, so they would just go to a city like Lisbon or like Barcelona, get there on a Thursday or Friday, leave on the Monday, maybe go, go back to their parents' place after they get back for like a week, sort of take a break, hang out with family. Yeah. But then right after that, they go back to, to the camp to train. What often happens, though, with the camp being um, the place to develop the athletes, um, once they can earn, you know, a little bit of good prize money mm. from these from these races, they go out, they get their own land, uh, maybe start a family or, or support their own family. Yeah. Uh, you know, get a cow, get some land and and get set up with something sustainable and, and more on their own there. So how would, like, if you, do you know a lot about how the, the company started or? Um... A little bit, yeah. So I think it was 2009. Mm. Um, there was some marathon in Italy that Peter went to. And I think um, he was sort of unofficially managing or looking after a few Brits mm. uh, that he coached. Um, locally and um i guess uh different uh agent ended up uh you know bailing on going to look after some kenyans last minute yeah um to that race and so he was tasked with uh looking after some kenyans at this race in italy um and decided you know uh it was something he wanted to do and it just all kind of escalated from there. Because um, would you say most, say I'm a Kenyan runner. Yeah. Um, 
would I do most of them have representation or do most of them need representation before they go outside or do most of them just run in Kenya unless they're selected for the Kenyan national team? Okay, that was a very loaded question, I have to say. Oh, no, just, I'm like, um, oh, I, it's just, I don't actually, you know, if I was a Kenyan runner, I don't really understand. Um, and actually, it's partly because when I was talking to, um, I can't remember her name now, the the lady that I, I introduced from, from Ethiopia, and it was really yeah. interesting talking to her because she was flown out to, to Amsterdam by, sound like a terrible guy, and... Huh. basically had a bit of a tough time but she now funds herself to fly to Amsterdam to then yeah. win enough races to make enough money to then come back to Ethiopia and train right and so um I just it just never really occurred to me how it naturally happens if there is just a system or if everyone's just finding their way or self-financed to races I mean is there would a typical Kenyan go through a standard, I guess, procedure or a standard route to to races such. Yeah. So, um, what the athlete that you mentioned um, does now, where yeah. funding the trips on her own, uh, I would say that's very rare for an East African runner to mm. to do that, and um, you know, communicate with race directors and negotiate on their own behalf and uh, coordinate travel and accommodation and everything else um, that goes into it. Uh, You know, just lack of resources and and technology and things like that can can make it really hard for for a Kenyan or Ethiopian or Ugandan or Eritrean uh, to do that kind of thing. So um Kipchoge for example is with yeah. Global Sports Communications so Yos Hermans is his agent um Rudisha actually just uh signed with a new agent this year so the the, the really top top names mm. uh have managers and um I would say athletes with managers it goes all the way on down to athletes you know as long as managers can find races yeah. uh for those athletes that will earn them good, good money yeah then it would make sense to manage that athlete okay. so the the management agency gets 15% um commission yeah typically from uh earnings and so that's prize money appearance fees uh time uh bonuses from races performance uh bonuses from whatever sponsorship contract they might have yeah and 15 percent um of their yearly retainer if they have an endorsement uh contract with the manufacturer um so as long as uh manager can assess that that athlete is going to be commercially viable then um it's worth it to sign them so yeah i mean 50 15 percent it's it's a fair bit of money for the Kipchoge, but actually, yeah. For, unless there, there aren't many people earning a lot of money in running, I wouldn't say. So actually, I mean, how many people in Kenya would you estimate have a management contract because they're earning enough money? That's a good question. Um, well, we manage about roughly say. 
30 canyons yeah. between our between our men and our women. Wow. It's, it, it's maybe a bit lower than that. It might be closer to 20 or 25. Yeah. Um, and uh, there's actually a lot of managers out there, um, particularly in Kenya, yeah. uh, who have far bigger rosters than we do. Um, so there's, there's management agencies out there with 60, 70, you know, big numbers of, of yeah. runners. Cause there's, there's so many races across the globe yeah. and, you know, there's a lot of good prize money out there to be won. Um, and are they snapping kids up at an early age just in case, or is it, you've got to prove yourself? Perfect. Well, we, I, I mean, so, the kid is maybe a relative term in Kenya. Mm. Um, I'm sure you've heard, you know, Kenyans, you can never, or a lot of times you don't know their, their real age. <laughs> yeah. You've yeah. heard about all of that. So. Well, there was, wasn't there an amazing uh, footballer in America, a soccer player, who I think was Nigerian, and they signed him because he was, he was essentially the best player in the world. For a 15 year old or, or similar to that. And then they, they signed him and he didn't grow and he didn't get any better. And they realized that he was a really good player who was about 25. <laughs> he never improved. Was that Freddie Adu? That sounds you familiar. That? It could have been okay. Freddie Adu, yeah. Yeah. Um, so what I, to answer your question, I think, um, Obviously, we're trying to develop a runner yeah. that's maybe 18, 19, 20, somewhere yeah. in there. Mm. And we, we could see for sure that, that they had a bright future and, and we could develop them into a, into a really great athlete. Yeah. Then we, we would consider signing them. Um, I, as far as what the other management agencies do, I can't speak as much to that. Um, but I would say you you probably don't have a management contract mm. until you're ready to go to these races and and earn good money. Okay. Um, and until you have a management contract, you're not obligated to to one agency or another. Yeah. Yeah. So it is possible, you know, that other agencies might be trying to do some sort of um, youth development type system, mm. but it wouldn't. I, I I wouldn't think it'd be any in any organized fashion or things yeah. like that. Yeah. And so how, how does it work financially then with, with races? I mean, what, if you were to think about the vast majority of races that your, your athletes go to, what percentage of the money that your athletes come back with would you say is appearance fee and what is the winner's fee? Um, that can all really depend on the race. Mm. Sorry, I'm just getting comfortable here. <laughs> um, so I'm just trying to think um, specific examples without getting too into the into the details of it. Well, so for but example, when I, when I first met you guys, it was the, the second year of the Brighton Marathon, and I was pacing there, and because of that, was in the hotel with all of the run fast guys. Okay. And, um, blagged my way into their, their dinner, uh, mm. pretending that I was one of the official pacers. Well, I kind of was, but not a pacer of them. And I met them all and it, it seemed as if 
they were quick, but they were like 208, 209, 210 marathon runners. And they yeah. almost, and, and for them, they weren't necessarily going to race flat out. There's no way that anyone was going to challenge them outside of run fast. So I was wondering, well, firstly, what is in it for the races to have? Cause I, th- I think for some races where you want to appear to be fast, it's useful, but I was at the Surrey half uh, yesterday and one of the girls there was run fast. And I think she was just there because she was, wanted to run, but I thought 99% of the people who race here couldn't care less about who wins. They're just here either because it's local or they want to get a good time themselves. So I guess my real intrigue is, um, the appearance fees, I don't fully understand why races do it. Okay. Well, so the, both the athletes that we had racing, um, in Lisbon over the weekend got yeah. appearance money. Um, so among the total money that our third place runner earned, um, I think it was roughly here, um, a third of it, or sorry, a fourth of it was appearance fees. Yeah. A fourth of it was, uh, bonus from, um, his, uh, sponsor. Yeah. Um, for finishing top three in a, uh, I think what they call a, uh, major international road like race. Like a Grand Prix equivalent or, yeah. yeah. Right. Um, the third quarter of it was, uh, place prize money for finishing third place. Yeah. And the fourth quarter of it was their sub 61 time bonus. Oh, interesting. So the races set these bonuses as well. Yeah. Basically, um, and I, I, this is something I wonder about too, right? Because you take a race like the, um, Baltimore Marathon. Yeah. Um, they've been in, in business for a number of years. They had a sponsorship with Under Armour, um, who was a company founded in Baltimore. Yeah. Um, they lost that sponsorship, uh, going into their 2017 race. Um, and so they just up and decided to take away prize money and elite field and everything else. Mm. So it went from like a two, maybe 212, 208 type of, type of race to 226. Yeah. Um, but on the, uh, participation side of it, they still had, um, you know, thousands and thousands of participants, uh, you know, people paying the full entry fee to the race, um, bringing money into the, into the city and everything else. But having said that, um, I mean, London, London marathon, um, which we uh, help provide pacers for uh, as well. And we're actually in talks with them and have been for the last few weeks yeah. uh, about, about providing pacers. Um, London marathon uh, firmly establishes itself as, you know, the best marathon in the world in terms of the elite fields. Yeah. I mean, they've had nine um, of the top 10 before, haven't they? Yeah. So just, I mean, this year alone, you have Mo, uh, Kipchoge, mm. I think, um, is Bekele doing it again? I've not checked this year, be. actually. Um, I, and I know they have the defending champion, Daniel Wanjiru. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they have Mary Kitani, who they're setting up a world record attempt for. Yeah. There's no way you get these kinds of fields and the, these caliber athletes without yeah. really good appearance money. 
Yeah, absolutely. But I, I, I absolutely agree with that. And I, I would watch. I'd only watch like a Berlin Marathon if I genuinely thought there was going to be a good race on and a potential world record. Um, yeah. Well, it was a barn burner this year, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And but then, but I, I, what I find quite interesting is that I mean, for for one, it, it it brings me great joy that your athlete he only earns a quarter of the money from turning up because I, I I like the idea that everyone has to work for their money, um, but also there's there is an element of that London can probably justify it through the branding and also through the selling the rights to television. And getting more money out of their sponsors for the actual amount of PR the race gets. And so, you know, you, you get this guy in and suddenly you make more money than you're paying him. But I find it quite interesting where, you know, a Lisbon Marathon or a Brighton Marathon, a Brighton Half Marathon, where I can't quite figure out how the, the race is making the money back, really. Yeah. Well, just to take a crazy example, mm. um, Usain Bolt used to go to these, uh, obviously the Diamond League meetings, and he would go to the one in Paris, and they would publish appearance fees for him, and it was, I think it was $1.3 million that he got for appearance fees. And yeah. I will say, some of, depending on the race, um, you have to finish the race in order to get your appearance fee. <laughs> you have, have to, to finish the 100 to, meters. <laughs> yeah, so you have to make it to 30K, you know, in a marathon. Okay. Depending on the race. I mean, each race, you know, can can set their own terms and drop their own uh, contracts yeah. for it with the agent and the athlete if they want. Um, you know, I, one um, thing that, you know, has, you know, kind of affected the the race industry in the past few years mm. in is is a decline of um you know being interested in the elite field and and prize money and appearance fees and all that so you might make you oh, so might has be actually changed. A great case here that yeah that you know maybe they aren't really able to to make back what they're what they're spending on their elite budget um but I think it's it, it comes down to prestige mm. um, and it comes down to, you know, what matters to the race director. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of people uh, working in, in running and working in, in elite um, athlete management, whether it's as a race director, as an agent, are former runners themselves. Mm. Um, so I think, you know, they want to set up a great race uh, that's going to be, like you said, a PR opportunity for their race. Yeah. Um, a good race for the for the fans and for the athletes. And um, I guess somewhere back uh, in the early days of professional running, maybe 80s, somewhere along there, I, I would assume uh, appearances started to sort of become the norm where yeah. – you had to shell out cash if you wanted this athlete to to show up there. Well, I mean, it definitely makes sense for proving proving your course, really, because there there was quite a long time, about four years to well, until about four years ago, where London was wasn't seen as a fast course, mm-hmm. and they have they have changed slight bits. For example, they used to run 
the loop around Tower Bridge, which was lovely, but was quite narrow and cobbly. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, you you would never argue now that London isn't a fast course because there have clearly been opportunities where people, if things had gone slightly differently, would have set the world record. So, yeah. and and I can see that with other races as well. You know, if you want to show that. Brighton can be fast if you get one guy absolutely blitzing it then everyone you know makes the right conclusion um so but yeah it's 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 interesting to see how the money split up um in terms of how you manage that then because you've got this roster of Kenyans who let's face it can win any race that you send them to out other than maybe 10 races Knock on wood. Is that fair to say? Um, it all really can, you know, come down to the athlete and their situation. And even then, you know, day of the race, how they're feeling, anything can really come up. Where we're operating right now is, is giving the best possible opportunities for our athletes to perform at their best and and progress into, into better and better athletes. So it might be the case where we can send an athlete to a really good race that, um, has accepted our athlete because yeah. typically with these races, uh, we have to propose athletes to the elite athlete coordinator. Okay. Um, with, you know, our athletes season and personal best and things like that. And, um, the race can either accept them or or turn them away. So um, we want them to get into the best races possible, you mm. know, within reason. We want them to be earning good monies for themselves and their families and for us. Um, so we kind of have to be selective in that sense. Um, we have certain, and these aren't, you know, hard and fast uh, by any means, but yeah. we have, have certain, uh, you know, first place minimums and things like that in terms of, uh, prize money on offer. Yeah. Um, we obviously want to have their travel covered as much as possible. Yeah. Um, we have, uh, good relationships with, uh, you know, a lot of different races around the globe, different connections. And so races a lot of times come to us asking for athletes. Um, so having started, in 09, you know, around there, um, it's sort of building up that profile, um, to where we can get into, you know, more races and, and have more athletes in those races. So it can all kind of depend. I mean, there's, but how, how do you manage, how do you manage internally? Because essentially you're in a situation where you've got a group of 10 guys walking into a bar. They're all incredibly attractive. And there's one ugly guy in the corner. You're like, right. Who's going to, He's going, he's going to pull the ugly girl because essentially you've got athletes you know all of your athletes could turn up and be the first 15 in a race so how do you is there almost do you almost level you've got a, a ladder of your athletes and then you rank the races based on right that's only a five out of ten so you do that one that's a nine out of ten so our top guy's going I mean, how, how do you play internal politics if they all know they could potentially win it um, well, we have a Google Sheet database, um, mm. and uh, we have one tab that says road races, another tab that says marathons, um, 
And on the, uh, for the rows, we put the races in chronological order. And for the columns, we put the athletes. Mm. Um, and so it all just depends on the athlete, uh, and how they stack up in that race. Yeah. We look at previous results. Um, we look at prize money and, you know, if they're able to provide travel and appearance fees. Um, obviously we want to be sending athletes to races only if we know that they're in good shape. Yeah. Um, so what we do actually as well, um, is, uh, we have a flat, uh, in London yeah. where the Kenyans can stay for a few weeks at a time. So usually they do a series of races in the spring or the fall and they would do, um, three. And those are all pretty much sort of lower ish level races. Yeah. Where we can take somebody off the camp or, you know, from their whatever village they're training in and maybe they've just signed with, with run fast or, um, our recent signing. We take them to this series of races and can mostly, you know, provide for their housing. They, you know, pay a small amount for, yeah. for food. But we make sure they that it's set up so that they can because these races won't cover travel. Yeah. So we set it up so that they can accumulate enough prize money in those three races yeah, yeah. to then cover their travel and then have enough money to take back home with them. Um, but ideally, when they do those races, they've run good times that will get them into better races. So those, so that there's kind of. I mean, we don't really tier off races or, or score them one to 10, things like yeah. that. It's more of just the time of the year knowing, uh, which race is going to be good for which athlete. The, yeah. the higher caliber athlete that we have, the higher caliber races we're going to get them into, especially if they're in really good shape and, um, can earn a lot of money and raise their profile in a race. So for example, our, uh, our, our male athlete, Morris Gachaga, yeah. um, took third at this, at the Lisbon half. He beat, um, Zersene Tedese, the half marathon world record holder, beat tons of guys. It was a huge elite field. Yeah. Um, and he's, so he's now raised his profile based on that. Yeah. Having, having just run 60 17 for a half. But even, even previously last month, he did the rack half marathon. In, um, I think in the United, in Saudi Arabia, or I think it was United Arab Emirates. Yeah. Um, and he ran 59.36 to place fifth. <laughs> fifth. So, yeah, <laughs> it was, it's, it's one of the richest and deepest half marathons <laughs> okay. in the world. Yeah. And, and we actually got, we got him into that race as a pacer. Yeah. So he was allowed to finish the race. I think he was supposed to pace through 15k. Yeah. And if he was feeling good, he could finish it. <laughs> so, so he ended up, he ends up finishing it and breaking an hour and the half marathon for the first time. For the and first time when he was 24 seconds. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That's amazing. So, so he's a guy that we can get into, we can get him into pretty much any half marathon in yeah. the world. And, and that's, you know, with maybe a bit of a caveat because some agents have, you know, more or better pull than we might yeah. at, you know, certain major road races. So 
those road races might um, prefer athletes from a different manager, which is unfortunate. But um, ideally, we want to, you know, keep producing and developing those kinds of athletes and results. And then, you know, there aren't 10 races where they could they could win or, or podium and and we can build up from there and and, you know, start to really bring in more income for ourselves as well. And so do if you're a race organizer, do you tend to almost subcontract out the top end to one management firm or are you saying I'll have one of you, I'll have one of you, I'll have one of you? I think um, I think it could be either. Yeah. Um, my understanding is it's more so the latter, mm. but, um, we have been able to establish the former kind of connection with, um, uh, the Madrid half marathon next month. So we're pretty much providing the elite field for that. Yeah. And it's mostly our athletes. Um, but we've had to reach out or, have other managers get in touch with either the race or us and um, coordinate them, those their athletes to line up on the, on the start line. Um, In the case of this race, I was just at in Lisbon. um, There was an elite athlete uh, coordinator for that race that I think the race ownership hires is a Spanish guy named Miguel. And he's the, uh, elite athlete race coordinator for track, uh, cross country, uh, road races, um, all across Spain and Portugal. Yeah. So it can really depend on the race. And say you've got a situation where, um, you're bringing three people out. I mean, if, if I, for example, think of three people for my club, there'll be one or two that I might be sometimes, they might be me sometimes. But there's quite a few more that I will always beat and they will always beat me. Is is it a case that your runners turn up and they they go, you know, they hammer it out? Or is there almost a pecking order where one guy will think, well, as long as I'm in third, I'm picking up the most I can. So actually, I'm going to run a 215 because the fourth guy's 216. Um, or I mean, does there, I'm not saying there's kind of, gentlemen's agreements before but it's almost an expectation of how people are going to run and would you pick three people for a race like that where you'd be like he's our winner he's our second he's our third so you know everyone's happy rather than saying here's three people that are potentially going to put them they kill themselves in this race to be split by three seconds yeah well it can all depend on the prize money um the kind of elite field they're putting together mm. Um, previous results of the race, um, and which athletes we have available on our roster. Yeah. Um, so, uh, we, we do it very tactically. Yeah. Um, in order to maximize revenue, basically. Yeah. yeah. So, so we're not going to put all our best athletes into one race. Yeah. Because then we know they're going to beat each other and we can only earn so much, uh, prize money from uh from one race yeah yeah so so we have to balance out our expectations on the athlete versus our expectations on the race you know versus you know what's gonna what's gonna bring in the most prize money what kind of appearance fees the race is offering and that we can get um 
what shape the athlete uh, or the athletes are in. And, and how much information would you also be fed back about the other runners who are turning up? Would, would you be able to, in advance, be like, oh, we better up the runner we're putting forward because this guy will probably lose to him, but our guy, this guy would beat him. I mean, is there a, a little bit of you're almost, um, you're almost playing poker with the other management agencies on who to send to each race? Yeah. Why right, we're gonna we're gonna pretend that we are we gonna pretend we've listened to that or they haven't listened to it? Um, who who's listened to it? They are we, are we gonna to pretend it? you've listened to it or not? Yeah, pretend, pretend that we that I've listened to it. Whoa, David, that was really interesting. <laughs> great questions, great questions, great questions. So, um, listeners, that is just part one of the two episodes. Part two is gonna be coming out in a few days' time. We wanted to get this one straight out to you. If you like this episode um, and you can't wait for another, go back and listen to the ones I'd recommend. Camille Heron set the 50-mile, 100-mile world, world record. She's a do-badder through and through, drinks beer as she goes. If you're into more of obstacle racing, we speak to John Album. We speak to James Appleton about that. Um, if you love your ultra running, we've also spoken to people like Dean Carnassus and Robbie Britton. Any, uh, any favorite episodes you'd like to recommend, Jodie? Um, I think we should always mention that if you um, if you listen to any of these episodes and you wonder what it is that we're talking about, it's always worth, uh, if you want to understand the uh, bad boy running community, to uh, go back and listen to the A to Z of uh, bad boy running. Three episodes worth that explain all the uh, the lexicon and the vocabulary that we use that probably doesn't make a lot of sense, um, but it'll give you a great overview um, of everything that we talk about. But a lot of people go back and start from the beginning because very few of our episodes are actually time specific. We don't tend to just read our results. It tends to be more themed on either um, races or individuals. Um, so you can do that. And if you've got any feedback, you can either get into the Facebook group. There's a thriving community or you can email us at letters at badboyrunning.com. Suggestions for guests, suggestions for topic. We go out there, we get these people, we get them on. So um, please subscribe, tell your friends, and we'll be back in a few days with part two. Bye-bye, 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 bye-bye.